Chapter 24 Budget and Currency Issues If we want to maintain a free society, we must take away the monopoly of issuing money from the government. Friedrich August von Hayek, Economist and Social Philosopher On the one hand, a free private city must be attractive enough to attract citizens, which means spending on security, dispute resolution systems, and a basic infrastructure. On the other hand, the contributions collected for it must not be too high so as not to discourage interested parties. For this reason, the operator must find a middle way of positioning himself via various sources of income in such a way that the level of contributions is affordable and yet a sufficiently high level of performance and an attractive infrastructure can be made available. It is not possible to predict which financing models will work best in this respect. This must be shown in practice. The question also depends on the form of the agreement with the host state, which may require the payment of duties to the host state. Some of the revenue must be set aside to provide for unforeseeable contingencies and emergencies so that the operator is not forced to come back to the citizens asking for more money. Monaco, for example, has reserves amounting to twice the annual government expenditure, and Liechtenstein holds at least a complete annual budget in the bank. 1. Earnings In principle, several sources of income are possible for the operator. Traditional states are financed by taxes of all kinds, other contributions and levies, fees, and fines. The main characteristic of taxes is that no specific reciprocal service is implied, nor can any be demanded. Fees, on the other hand, are fees to be paid for specific use, for example, court fees or the transport fee in public transport. Fees for specific services do not differ in principle from prices charged by non-governmental service providers for such services. This source of income is also available to the free private city, for example, in the form of court or registration fees. The collection of a fee also makes sense to prevent individual troublemakers from unnecessarily straining these facilities. On the other hand, the collection of contributions that can be changed at any time without a specific reciprocity would lead to the legal uncertainty and to struggles for distribution discussed earlier, even in a free private city. This can be countered by contractually stipulating the number, type, and maximum amount of contributions to be made and not allowing unilateral changes. Otherwise, free private cities would lose a major competitive advantage. Even if it is possible to leave at any time, systems that can arbitrarily change or extend the type and amount of the payment obligation create considerable uncertainty that endangers the assets earned, income, and old age security of citizens. And as far as popular redistribution policies are concerned, that is, taxing the rich to allegedly help the poor, the problem of poverty is not diminished but on the contrary increased. For any such redistribution policy reduces the incentive to become rich and productive and increases the incentive to remain poor and unproductive. However, contract citizens of a free private city should only pay for what they have ordered on terms known in advance. 
Therefore, all contributions to be paid are to be classified as fees for services, which may only be used for the purposes laid down in the citizen's contract. Contributions and duties are thus placed in a contractual, reciprocal relationship subject to judicial review. They can therefore also be the subject of a right of retention under civil law, namely if the operator does not fulfill his contractual obligations as stipulated. It is irrelevant what the contributions are called. For reasons of conceptual distinction, however, such payments within the framework of the citizen's contract shall hereinafter not be referred to as taxes, but as contributions and duties. Basic Fee The most honest and transparent financing is the collection of an annual contribution which is the same for all residents and which covers the corresponding costs for the services received according to the mandatory package in the citizen's contract. In principle, there should be no exceptions with regard to the obligation to pay this basic fee. In the provision of private services on the market, there is also no price differentiation as to which income group the service recipient belongs to. However, it may be difficult for newcomers seeking work to pay the basic fee. In this respect, a deferral could be granted for the first one to two years. The basic fee can be paid later if the person concerned has sufficient liquidity. A similar arrangement is conceivable for contract citizens who have fallen into financial difficulties. Alternatively, businesses may agree to pay contributions for certain workers. Special regulations are still conceivable for underage children. They pay either a lower contribution or no contribution at all until they reach the age of majority. Similarly, contributions may be waived for pensioners who have resided in the free private city for a minimum number of years and have paid contributions. Even for the first settlers who have taken on higher risks, a reduction in contributions may occur after a certain period of time. There is wide leeway for the city operator who must strike a balance between the interest of all in equal treatment and the need to make appropriate exceptions. However, a warning is in order. The more special cases and unequal treatment there are, the more people will attempt to take advantage of unjustified benefits. In particular, the basic fee should not be used as a mechanism for redistribution, progression, remission for the poor, etc., this is primarily a payment for a service actually provided, namely the provision of a secure and stable framework by the free private city. This service not only costs something, but is also worth something. Be it because not every resident pays the basic fee or because the basic fee is kept generally low, it may be necessary to cover some of the expenses from other sources of income. In particular, the operator's own economic activities, as well as other duties and fees, are options for cross-financing the basic fee or for generating additional investment capital. It is possible that a city operator generates so much revenue from real estate and other businesses that no contribution at all has to be charged. However, the basic fee should never be completely abolished. At least a symbolic contribution should always be due, simply to make it clear that the services of the free private city do not fall from the sky for free and that there is an indivisible connection between service and reward. The contribution can be paid annually or quarterly, in advance. 
Failure to pay entitles the operator to terminate the contract if necessary after a certain period has elapsed. Ideally, no other payments are due apart from the basic fee. The operator offers a service, and this is thereby compensated. Now, it may be that the revenue generated is not sufficient, depending on the scope of services offered by the free private city, or the operator may be obliged by virtue of the contract with the host state to levy certain taxes or duties. In such cases, further types of income are conceivable, but must, however, always be laid out in advance in the citizen's contract according to type and amount. Excise Duties a possible source of additional income is excise duties. These are added to the sales price of products and services, but only if the corresponding exchange or consumption is made, similar to value-added tax or sales tax. They have the advantage of making it unnecessary to snoop around in the private lives of the citizens for collection, and the payment obligation can be influenced by the payer. He can decide beforehand whether the acquisition is worth the additional cost. However, it should be noted that such charges are not insignificant, especially for small and medium-sized traders who must first collect the sums in question. Not only do regular declarations have to be made on the revenue subject to the tax, but complicated questions can arise regarding the so-called input tax deduction or services with an international dimension. It is therefore more business-friendly, at least for small and micro-enterprises, not to levy any such excise duties. This spares everyone involved a great deal of red tape. Moreover, excise duties contribute to making products and thus the cost of living more expensive for everyone. Property Duties Another possible source of income is duties on real estate. They encroach on property rights and the substance of assets, but are the lesser evil compared to any income tax brought into play by the host state. The advantage of property levies is that the debtor and the corresponding reference value can easily be determined at any time. For example, the city could require a levy based on the value of the land. It is payable annually and the value is determined by an expert. Following the sale of land, both registration fees and additional transaction fees are also options. Ideally, the market value of the properties increases steadily as the free private city develops so that the corresponding income from property duties also increases. Both the property duty and the transaction fees should, of course, be in the low single-digit percentage range or below so as not to make the purchase of land any more expensive than absolutely necessary. Other Duties Any and all duties should be discouraged that directly interfere with existing income or property, an exception is noted above in the previous paragraph, and require the extensive involvement of the persons liable to the duties, such as duties with the effect of income taxes, company taxes, taxes on capital gains, inheritance taxes, or wealth taxes. These levies require an intensive examination of the debtor's circumstances. He has the constant threat of punishment hanging over his head because he may not have declared everything correctly. This makes it considerably more difficult to build up assets, 
property, pensions, and businesses, including efforts to do so over several generations and thus impairs self-reliance. Corporate taxes make products more expensive for everyone and weaken the international competitiveness of businesses. Similar to the practice in medieval free imperial cities, however, successful free private cities could consider demanding a kind of one-off payment from new citizens in return for a share of the investments already made. Alternatively, the acquisition of a share in the operating company of the free private city for a cash contribution can be demanded, which in return secures a voice in the running of the city as well as a claim to any dividends which may ensue. Specific Fees Specific fees are another source of financing. Since most areas in the free private city are privatized, the scope for additional fees is relatively small. The basic services like police, the fire department, and emergency rescue are already paid for by the basic fee. Court and registration fees are conceivable. However, one could also think about fees for special cases, such as payment for the protection of a major private event by the police and fire department. Unlike the basic fee and other charges, it seems justifiable to place the price for such services at the discretion of the operator, especially as these are only incurred if the corresponding facilities are actually used. Real Estate Transactions Profits from real estate transactions, whether through sale or rent, are likely to be one of the main sources of income for the operating company, at least in the first years or decades after its foundation. This is simply because the operator knows the intended location right from the start. He can acquire land for an amount that has not yet priced in the special status of a free private city. Once it has been created, this alone increases the value of the land. If the city develops successfully, value will continue to accrue and should multiply over the years. It is also conceivable that the free private city will be developed without the operating company having any real estate at all. This is unlikely to be preferable, however. Objections from landowners could hinder or delay the construction of even the most basic infrastructure and, moreover, the operator would miss out on the possible income resulting from the increase in property values on vacant property. Empty land, still owned by the operator, however, represents a possible reserve for future investments, the cross-financing of basic services, and unforeseen expenses. If the land on which the free private city is to be built is not owned by the host state and the transfer of ownership is part of the negotiation with the host state, acquiring the land may prove very difficult. When the contractual agreement with the host state becomes known, the land prices skyrocket overnight. Government officials involved in or aware of the negotiations could even try to acquire such land in advance for their own advantage. The operator can prevent this by concluding option agreements with the local landowners at an early stage, according to which the operator can exercise an option to buy at a predetermined price if an agreement is actually reached with the host state. Shareholding Finally, the operator can invest in companies that provide services for the residents and thereby generate profits. In the beginning, he might even have to do this himself because other providers are not yet prepared to take an entrepreneurial risk in the early phase of a free private city. 
This concerns the operation of waste collection, water, and electricity supply, schools, kindergartens, hospitals, toll roads, to name but a few. Once the city is established, the operator can later profitably sell these businesses to specialized companies. In this area, there is a temptation to collect monopoly profits by not allowing other providers or forcing them to transfer shares to the city operator. However, if the city operator optimizes his profit expectations at the expense of service quality, his product loses its overall attractiveness. It may be impractical to allow several competitors to operate in the same territory in the cases of water supply and waste collection. In cases such as these, business could be divided by geographic district. For most things, however, it is not a problem to allow several competitors to operate at the same time. Kindergartens, schools, or hospitals are good examples. Weighting of Revenues Private operators of special economic zones, such as the Jabal Ali Free Zone, provide some indication of the weighting of revenues one might expect in a free private city. Those operators generally generate about 60 to 70 percent of their revenues through real estate transactions, 20 to 30 percent through services such as warehousing, port management, and waste disposal, and 10 to 20 percent through administration and license fees. 2. Expenses What expenses are likely to be incurred? Looking at the budgets of small and city-states, the largest items are generally education, health, pensions, social expenses, and debt servicing. Expenditure on internal security, police, fire department, courts, prisons, is generally in the range of only 5% of total expenditure. Infrastructure expenditure, Roads, pipelines, lighting, etc. amounts to around 10% of the total budget. This means that a free private city can be operated with only 15% of a normal state budget. But what does this mean in absolute figures? This depends primarily on the size of the city. Island states in the Pacific and the Caribbean have the smallest national budgets. For example, Tuvalu spends $23 million annually for 10,000 inhabitants. Vanuatu spends $168 million for 220,000 inhabitants, all figures in U.S. dollars. By comparison, a wealthy small state like Andorra spends $790 million for 83,000 inhabitants, while a metropolis like Hong Kong spends $41.5 billion for 7.2 million inhabitants. A comparison between Tuvalu and Vanuatu shows considerable economies of scale. While poor Tuvalu spends $2,300 annually per capita, Vanuatu spends only about $750. This is simply because certain things have to be there for a population, even if it only has 10,000 inhabitants. The same institutions in Vanuatu, with its 220,000 inhabitants, are far from being 22 times more expensive. More is always possible, of course, especially in those states that have a much higher gross national product and per capita income. Barbados, approximately the same size as Vanuatu, spends $3,100 per capita, more than four times as much. 
In Andorra, the figure is $9,500 and in Hong Kong, $5,700. Singapore spends $5,900 per capita. In Monaco, it is almost $30,000. In Luxembourg, as much as $45,000. On the basis of these values, it can be assumed that the mandatory package of the citizen's contract, rounded up, would correspond to about 20% of the budget of conventional small states. This should enable a free private city to get by with an annual per capita contribution of between $500, to Valu standard, 10,000 inhabitants, and $1,200, Singapore, Hong Kong standard, 100,000 inhabitants, and more. Due to the efficiency and cost advantages of private administration, this might even be significantly less. Sandy Springs' experience has shown that the provision of formerly public services by private companies allows savings of 10 to 40 percent. And indeed, a cross-comparison with Sandy Springs shows that with an annual budget of $95 million and a population of 95000 they incur expenses of $1,000 per capita. The components of the mandatory package for free private cities would represent about a third of the total budget of Sandy Springs. For a population of 100,000, an annual contribution of only $350 per person is conceivably enough to guarantee a standard typical of a highly developed country. That sounds terribly low. It should be noted, however, that the people living in a free private city naturally have other expenses that are borne by the state elsewhere, especially for education and social security. But even in these areas, there is every reason to assume that savings on the order of magnitude of Sandy Springs can be achieved due to private sector service provision. Considering the ineffectiveness typical of public administration, there are considerable reserves here that can be exploited by a profit-oriented provider without compromising the quality of service. In addition, each citizen can put together their own portfolio and level of protection according to their budget and personal preferences. Life should therefore become noticeably cheaper for practically the entire working population without any loss in benefits. This leaves more money available for higher living standards, old age provision, or other purposes. Furthermore, when calculating the contribution, it must be taken into account that the examples also include underage children, disabled persons, and pensioners in the per capita analysis. Here, the operator has to decide to what extent he wants to ask these groups to pay, especially children who are highly desirable for the further growth of the city could be included in their parents' contribution, be subject to a family rate, or pay a reduced amount from a certain age. However the operator decides, the larger the group of those who have to pay less, the higher the contribution for everyone else. An additional item is expenditure on defense and the exercise of sovereignty rights in general, such as the maintenance of embassies, membership in international associations, etc. If the host state provides this, it is appropriate for the free private city to pay something in return. Further payments may have been agreed in the treaty with the host state. These are part of the mandatory package and must also be covered by the basic fee. If the host state requests that education and health care be offered free of charge by the city operator, the contribution would be higher still. 
The operator can counter the emergence of an inefficient education and health bureaucracy by providing incentives and guarantees to ensure that sufficient private providers are available in the city. All he has to do is hand out education and health vouchers and demand proof of school education or health insurance. The comparison between Tuvalu and Vanuatu also shows how an operator can earn money in areas other than real estate, namely through economies of scale. In this case, Vanuatu spends only a fraction of the cost per capita of Tuvalu, simply because it has 220,000 inhabitants compared to only 10,000 inhabitants. Nevertheless, the standard of living and life expectancy in Vanuatu are higher. The same would apply to a free private city. In the initial period with few inhabitants, the operator will have to pre-finance or cross-subsidize from real estate transactions in order to avoid exorbitantly high contributions. Later, he can cover costs or work with a narrow profit margin. If the population then rises above a certain level, considerable profits can be made. Here is a simplified example calculation. Suppose the cost contribution for the mandatory package, as in the Sandy Springs example, is $350. Total budget, $35 million for 100,000 inhabitants. But the operator demands $400. Then, with 100,000 paying contractors, he makes a profit of $5 million per year, excluding accruals and other sources of income. This corresponds to a return of 14.3%. Assuming the population now rises to 200,000, he does not have to double the infrastructure and staff for the mandatory package in order to achieve the same level of service. Suppose the total budget is increased from 35 to 50 million dollars in such a case. The cost contribution margin per capita will then drop to 250 dollars. The contribution to be paid will remain at 400 dollars. This doubles the revenue so that the profit rises to $30 million. $400 minus $250 equals $150 times $200,000, which results in a return of 60% per year. Now, at the very latest, the operator could start to build up reserves, invest in infrastructure, or reduce the contribution. The expenditure positions of a free private city which only offers the mandatory package, could look as follows. 1. Security. 1.1. Police. 1.2. Fire Department, Emergency Rescue. 1.3. Border Security, Immigration. 2. Administration. 2.1. Courts, Registry. 2.2. Finances, Collection of Contributions. 2.3 cooperation with the host country. 2.4. Other administration. 3. Infrastructure. 3.1. Road construction and maintenance. 3.2. Pipeline construction and maintenance. 3.3. Lighting. 3.4. Public places and parks. 3.5. Miscellaneous. 4. Basic Social Security, see Chapter 21. 5. Payments to Host Country. 6. Reserves for damages caused by natural hazards and similar events. Virtually all of this can in turn be subcontracted to private companies. 
However, the free private city remains obligated towards the contract citizens. There are several advantages for the city operator. For one thing, these service providers are usually specialized and thus more experienced and effective. In addition, they can be replaced by other companies in the event of poor performance. And finally, there are no pension obligations on the part of the city. The city operator's other economic activity, such as real estate development or the operation of service organizations, are not included here. These should stand on their own two feet economically and generate profits, which can then be used to cross-subsidize the mandatory package or for investments in infrastructure. It will probably not be possible to hand over all city infrastructure projects to private real estate developers, construction of toll roads and the like, immediately. Over time, however, it is conceivable that this will happen. This applies in particular to the construction of electricity and water pipelines. Further privatization in other areas is also conceivable, so that more and more can gradually disappear from the budget of the free private city. The following areas are not included in the mandatory package in the model being proposed here. Water and sewage, electricity, garbage collection, schools, education, and training, health insurance, old age provision, other insurances. Optimally, these things would be privatized immediately. At least in the medium term, specialist providers should be offering these services and billing the contract citizens directly. 3. Currency and Central Bank Another characteristic of a successful society is a stable currency. This is, so to speak, the lubricant of a functioning economy since it facilitates transactions and enables savings. It also builds trust and enables long-term planning and retirement planning. Money is indeed one of mankind's most practical and best inventions because it enables everyone to buy the goods and services they want virtually anywhere in the world. The ideological demonization of money completely misses the point. If money did not exist in its present form, other objects of exchange or favors would automatically take their place. Money is therefore always simply an indicator of a person's actual purchasing power. This in turn depends on the diligence, energy, skill, and of course the luck of the individuals concerned, or their ancestors. Unless required by the host state, there is no reason to set up a central bank or to specify a particular currency for the payment transactions of the contract citizens. The creation of central banks that manipulate money supply and interest rates and rescue insolvent commercial banks represents an ill-advised intervention in overly complex markets by planned economies in order to achieve certain results. These interventions will ultimately be just as unsuccessful as all the other planned economic interventions in goods and services markets. They certainly have an effect, but in the medium and long term, they do far more harm than good to the system as a whole because they encourage commercial banks to be more willing to take risks, the so-called moral hazard, and offer an ultimately irresistible temptation to any government to manipulate the currency to its own advantage. Artificially low interest rates facilitate the servicing of government debt. 
The purchase of government bonds by the central bank corresponds to the printing of money. Sooner or later, price inflation is certain to follow. But there is no such thing as controlled inflation. The effect corresponds to that of the ketchup bottle. At first, nothing comes out for a long time, and then suddenly everything comes out at once. The loss of confidence in previously stable currencies can occur within a few days and weeks. There is no example in history of pure paper or book money that didn't fail in the end. The market can decide which currencies are preferred at which conditions and interest rates. In particular, the interest rate should emerge on the market because otherwise misallocations occur that lead to the waste of resources, bubbles, and subsequent crises. If Panama, Liechtenstein, or Monaco can do without a central bank, then a free private city should be able to manage. The currency of the host state, a cryptocurrency such as Bitcoin, or a common regional or reserve currency will probably end up dominating the markets, or several currencies will coexist. Nevertheless, this raises the question as to how contributions, duties, and fees are to be paid to the free private city. For this purpose, the operator can specify several possible currencies in the citizen's contract, or only one. However, there is always the danger that this currency, because it is unsecured paper money, will be massively devalued by inflation or will no longer exist at some future point. There are two solutions for such cases. Firstly, an adjustment clause could be included in the contract, according to which the contribution would increase if inflation occurs. The methods of measuring inflation and the effort involved are problematic. If necessary, existing standard calculations may be agreed upon. However, there is always the risk that inflation will not be correctly reported for political reasons. An alternative would be that the operator reserves the right to claim the contribution in gold, or silver, or bitcoin, at his discretion. For example, the clause could be that the contribution is usually to be paid in currency X, but in gold at the request of the operator. The quantity of gold corresponding to the exchange ratio of the contribution in currency X to gold at the time the contract was concluded. In this way, the operator can protect himself against a currency decline over which he has no influence. The value of gold, on the other hand, has remained stable for thousands of years.